Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In Finland, children don't start formal schooling until age seven, aren't subject to standardized testing, and always get at least one hour of physical activity a day, broken into 15-minute free play breaks every hour, which take place outside, no matter the weather. Finnish parents and teachers espouse mantras like, let children be children, the children must play, and the work of a child is to play. Yet despite this emphasis on play, Finnish students still achieve enviable academic outcomes and grow up to become some of the happiest adults on earth. My guest today says the Finnish model of education and parenting with its heavy emphasis on play is worth replicating in other countries. His name is Posse Salberg, and he's a Finnish educator and researcher currently living in Australia, as well as the co-author along with William Doyle of the book, Let the Children Play, How More Play Will Save Our Schools and Help Children Thrive. Posse begins our conversation by sharing what the data says as to how much less kids are playing today than they did in the past and the factors that have led to this decrease both at school and at home. We then discuss the fact that even when kids do play today, it's often more structured and adult-directed, even sometimes involving something called a recess coach, and how this has led to the sad phenomenon of children who no longer know how to play on their own. We then discuss what is lost when kids don't play enough, from a decline in physical and mental confidence to a decrease in creativity. We end our conversation with the elements of healthy play that educators and parents who want to revive it can look to incorporate in their children's lives. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash play. All right, Posse Salberg, welcome to the show. Thanks, uh, Brett. Uh, good to be with you. So we got this book, Let the Children Play, and it's all about encouraging parents and teachers to let kids play, which is, you know, it's weird that you'd have to have a book to tell me, hey, kids play, which is this thing that all mammals do. Yeah. And it's just sort of natural. So let's talk about the state of play in the West, particularly in the United States. And I think you can say generally in the West because it's sort of, it's been spreading. You make the case that children in the U.S. are playing much, much less than children a generation ago. Do we have any numbers on this? Like how much, do we know how much children played, say, the start of the 20th century compared to how much play they're getting now? Yeah, you know, the, the first piece of evidence that we need to mention here is the 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 kind of a bold facts that come from parents and and we have been asking the same question in the United States or my colleagues have there I speak to you now in, in Australia we've done recently the similar type of uh, study and service here asking parents or particularly mothers that if you look at your own children today how much do they spend time playing outdoors and inside inside the house compared to what you did when you were uh, that age which is a kind of a interesting question to compare yourself your own experience to what what you see in your own children and you know in the united states north america and here is exactly the same as about 90% of parents respond that if they compare their own play experiences when they were kids that they used to play much more often significantly more than their children this of course is not the kind of a scientific proof of declining of playtime but it's a, it's an interesting indication but you you were asking you're asking for numbers and You know, if we go back in history, now looking at the United States, people often refer the 1960s as a kind of a golden era or decade of many things, uh, you know, freedoms and civil rights and many other things. But that was also the time when recess and play in the U.S., particularly primary school, elementary schools, was considered as part of the, the formal good education. So you, you were a good school if you were giving your children enough time to play, not just under the supervision of teacher and adult, but just, you know, play with other kids in the schoolyard. So until the 1980s, and now we, we, we come to the numbers here, 
uh, it was a common practice in the U.S. schools, and you know it was a common practice um, almost anywhere else that the schools typically had about three or four, ten to twenty minutes recess breaks every day throughout the schooling. When we came to 1990s in the United States, and and now we come to the kind of a part where this, you know, the data and evidence is a little bit more mixed because there are not exact numbers. It's hard to get the exact numbers, but some indication that in the early 1990s, almost all of the school districts in the United States reported that they have a they have a practice of recess in their schools or that they have the policy in place. So this was in the 1990s. So we're talking about, about 30 years ago. Now, what has happened ever since, and this is this is where the, the story gets interesting. It depends a little bit where you where, what, what type of data or surveys or research you look at. But in the beginning of the 2000s, around 2005, there, there's a one survey, a larger survey that indicates that 57% of U.S. districts or school systems had reasons. So it, it had declined significantly in about 15 years. Five years later, in 2000, about 10 years ago, 2010-11, 40% of the school districts in the U.S. reported that they have a policy of freezes and play in school in place, but only about 20% were implementing that policy according to their own information. In 2016, we are coming to you know closer of the situation today, only 16% of the U.S. states required freezes in primary schools. And now the situation is that we, we know that about 40% of the, uh, the, the school districts in the U.S. have either significantly reduced or completely eliminated the, the reasons in their schools. So that's what we, so, so we, we, see, we see this evolution of, you know, coming from the kind of an ideal situation where reasons and play were considered as a, as a normal part of education and, and, and learning in school to the situation where it's becoming a kind of a very rare thing. But now we are talking about the United States. Now, I don't know if you want to hear any good news, but you know, the good news now is that there has been a recent turnaround in this in many states, that many U.S. states have begun to understand that this, is, this, this has been the wrong, wrong thing to do, and they have uh, gradually introduced legislation and regulations that will, will actually mandate that the school should have at least 20 minutes every day for reasons. Some, some states have done, done it more. So we have seen uh, during the last 50 years, we have seen this kind of a curve of, you know, seeing reasons and play almost disappearing from schools and now then gradually, uh, luckily coming back. So what was driving the decrease of recess in primary school? Well, if you, if you teach, if you experience teacher or principal listen to this conversation here, you know the answer immediately because you, you, you see that, you know, something happened in the 1990s and particularly in the, the, the 2000s, in the beginning of this century, that probably has something to do with this decline. And, you know, in the 1990s, if you're American teacher or principal, you, you remember that 1990s was a time when, when the standardization began to take place in the schools, meaning that the, the, all the schools were kind of expected to follow the similar standards and expectations and then came the the kind of the the waves of standardized assessments and tests that were used to check whether these standards were were met and these were not the standards for play or reasons or creativity or arts or social sciences they're mostly standards for mathematics and reading and, and and science so the more the education systems in the united states began to get standardized and the more the schools began to be held accountable for those standards using these standardized tests, particularly 
following the No Child Left Behind legislation in early 2000s, the, the, the kind of a less focus and opportunities there has been on on Reese's and, and play. And so so that's obviously we cannot prove exactly that there is a kind of a causal link between those two things. But it's a, it's a very clear that, you know, that the, the more schools are kind of a seeing education as a high stakes game that they need to play in order to survive and, you know, keep things moving, the less focus there has been on those things that have been considered as a less significant for uh, for these stakes. Then there's another issue. I think that this this kind of a strictly educational uh, reform uh, movement issue that ha- is probably explaining this. But then there's the, another one that is simply the safety thing that there are there are schools. I remember my time. I spent about almost ten years living in the United States, and I, s- I saw tens or hundreds of schools. And I was always kind of a, surprised about the, the the safety concerns that were increasingly there, particularly whenever there was a uh, there was a, this horrible incidences of violence in the schools that you know the school school gates were closed and locked and and all the kids were kept inside and i i think that some in some places some districts or schools and particularly the urban urban area schools that they they kind of learn to live with this uh, fear and and danger and and thought that you know we rather keep kids indoors during the school days in case you know something happens so there are those two kind of a brand major things that have really negatively affected the time that kids have for them for themselves in a school for play and do other things and the, and the, this implementation of these recess uh, policies overall and you also talk about even when schools do have recess you give an example of this in the book it's the nature of it has changed so when i grew up recess was the teachers like just get out of here go play jump on you know whatever do whatever you want to do it was free play there was one school you highlighted where there was a a coach there was a recess coach and you're like, well, that's gym class. And like, no, no, it's this is recess. I'm the recess coach. Yeah, yeah, that's the um, and th- that's not that's not only the the U.S. phenomenon. I, I think th- this is something that my co-author uh, Bill Doyle saw in New York that he saw a lot of kids, you know, playing in the schoolyard, but not you know not as they normally do if they have a recess and you know play freely, you know, do wh- whatever they want to do. But there was a there was an adult there that was called coach, recess coach, that was doing all kinds of activities, often physical activities. And, you know, for us, it looked more like a, a, a typical gym class that was just uh, taken outside outside of the schoolhouse. And, and and that's, but, you know, I must say that here in Australia, I live in Sydney, and it's it's a very common thing here as well that, you know, you know after school, when children sometimes need to stay in the school a little bit longer after the school hours that, you know, rather than, you know, allowing them to play and, you know, self-organize and figure out what to do with with the other kids that they have this, this almost like a teachers or coaches there to, uh, to make sure that, you know, everybody has something to do. And, and in most cases, I think the reason is also that they, the parents and, and the schools, they want to, they kind of think that kids are safe when there's a, when there's an adult, you know, watching over and, <laughs> you know, asking them uh, what to do. I think this, the William, William's, story in this book is also interesting because the um, I think the coach there responds to him that uh, when, when William is asking that why do you why do you just don't let them play and you know watch over and the response is that there, there's so many kids now who don't know anymore how to play that they haven't they haven't been experiences of kind of a free self-directed play that much that they would know what to do and that's a kind of a sad sad part of the story 
That is a sad part of the story. Okay, so in schools, there's less recess. What's driving that? It's you know hard to say, but there's a hunch is whenever the increase in standardized testing in the United States, the pressure on faculty for the students to do well on those tests caused them to like spend less time on recess, more time in the classroom, getting ready for the test, and also the safetyism issue. Parents just being worried yes, about that. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a factor. But besides decreasing recess, you also talk about just in the classroom play has been reduced. You talk about in the 60s, even in the 50s, pedagogy in the United States, particularly for primary age students, it was very play-based. I mean, can you give us an idea what that looked like? And then what what is it what does school look like now with outplay? Yeah, I, I think it's it's more it's more about mostly about understanding what the play is all about. And that that's something that is often kind of a narrowly understood by many parents, particularly parents, not so much the teachers. I think yeah, all the teachers understand it. But, you know, for example, here, when I ask parents about play, they, the very common view still is the play is something you do when you've done all the serious stuff. You know, if, if, if they look if they look at their parents or adults, they say that, you know, play is something you do when you've done your work or when you completed your work. And, and you know, this, this is unfortunately how play is often still used in the schools. It's, it's almost like an award that you are given if you've done if you've done your homework, if you've been successful in the school, if you've done well in a test, that you kind of a, you are awarded a little bit extra time to play. Unfortunately, sometimes you are also punished by that. You know, if you're not if you're not a good boy in a school, that you don't you know when the others are having their twenty minutes to play, you don't you, you don't do that. But I think that in a, in a kind of a good school, for me, the play manifests itself in a in a way that is seen as as it was in the, in the 1960s in, in, in the U.S. schools, as you described, as a, as a normal, natural part of, you know, the way of life for young children. And it's seen also as a as an integral element of good learning, that this is, like, this, this is how children naturally learn, particularly when we are looking at the young children, that, you know, how the, how the children learn about themselves and learn about the world is is primarily through play different types of play activities and so so you know if the if the school is kind of a well designed and well thought around this idea of learning through play and and having play as a, as a important element it should be there everywhere not just that that, that we give children little play time when they have done the serious work but that the play would also enter into the classroom and these teaching and learning situations whenever that is a kind of a sensible. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, the school should be play all the time, but it should be should be designed in a way that the the the, the kids would also learn to understand that play is, is actually an important way of them to learn about the world and learn about other people and, and learn about themselves. Well I think back in my own like early childhood education, like the memory is very foggy so this is like the 80s so kindergarten first grade second grade i remember there being a lot of play like you'd sing songs and clap your hands you're saying the abcs that's play i mean it didn't feel like it was work uh dressing up there's like a dress up section i remember in kindergarten you dress up like a policeman or doctor or whatever yeah uh, and like math there's a lot of like just like you're playing with blocks and you're counting and uh, and but now i guess it's the the, the push is we have to get kids at an early age, there's a pressure, I guess, and its parents are worried about this too. It's like, well, I got my, I got to have my kindergartner doing math as soon as possible because we got to get ready for them to do well in the SAT in 18 years. And I need my, you know, 
five-year-old to know how to read because the earlier they read, they're going to do better on these standardized tests. And so there's this pressure to, I mean, that's another pressure you're taking play in order to do that. You have to kind of sort of, sort of this drill mentality with your teaching. But I mean, you've highlighted research that this concern that parents have or teachers have about making sure your kid can do all this stuff, math, reading really early, doesn't really do much for them. No, you know, there's no evidence to, that would support this argument that you made. You know, if you learn to read younger, that you will do better in school and life in general, or, you know, let alone that the younger you learn to read, the better you will do in school. That's not that's not the case. Not even even mathematics. I I, I think you know all of these all of these these correlations between the the academic abilities that are learned younger and you know how they how they correlate or explain your success or failure later on have no no kind of a research uh, evidence base. So we should not not believe uh, in, in these things. You know the good example I often. Um, when I think about the U.S. schools, I, I often say that, you know, go, go and see what the parents in the places like Silicon Valley do with their children, you know, what type of schools they go. They often go to this alternative pedagogy, you know, Montessori and Steiner schools where there's, a, you know, a lot of play and music and, you know, hanging around, you know, learning, learning in your own own pace and, and own ways rather than, you know, insist that you know, kids learn to do these things uh, earlier on. So I, I think the parents need to be very careful and mindful with that. I think, you know, what is predicting success in school and life much more than, you know, this early early learning of academic stuff is to, you know, learn learn to understand who you are and learn to kind of value your own, own capacities and 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 skills and and curiosity that you have and and this is exactly where the where the where the play comes into the uh, picture you know let, let alone the 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 other kind of a non-academic skills like you know social skills with you know being able to be with other kids and you know solving problems collectively in a, in a sandbox that often <laughs> often is a kind of an interesting thing to follow and also the you know the physical development of yourself that you you grow up healthy and happy so those things are, are often much more important for children young kids than you, you know, at what, what age do they learn to read or write? We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. It takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car. It's like cooking without the frozen dinner easy way out. eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as Oma's Ruladen. To cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Whether it's stress, a demanding morning schedule, or trouble sleeping, we all know that sometimes life keeps you up. And trying to conquer the day after a night of tossing and turning is not so easy. Now you can get the sleep you deserve with ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies. ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies are designed to help you fall asleep naturally with no next day grogginess. Made at an optimal level of melatonin combined with a proprietary blend of other botanicals like chamomile and lavender, ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies help to regulate your sleep cycle instead of just knocking you out. They're non-habit forming and work with your body to help you get the sleep you need. And to top it all off, they come in a great tasting wild berry vanilla flavor. So I've been using ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies for the past month now. Really have enjoyed it. I've used melatonin in the past to help me fall asleep when I've had trouble falling asleep. I like the Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies because, well, it comes in a gummy format. Who does not like gummies? The botanical blend helps you feel nice and relaxed, drift off to sleep. And the next day, don't feel groggy. Check out ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies and the full line of Pure Z's Sleep Aids to start sleeping soundly today. And now back to the show. 
So, we, okay, there's less play in school. What about when kids are out of school? Do we, I mean, I guess this is going to be kind of harder to figure out if they're playing less because you can't look at recess data. But any, I mean, I guess the data we have is you ask parents or mothers, like, what are your kids doing out of school? And I guess kids aren't really playing that much. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of lot of kind of uh, evidence that you know indicates to that kind of a, that type of conclusion that children are playing less today than they they did, you know, even even like 10, 20 years ago. And as you said, research is is quite difficult to find that would show this entirely. You know, Lego Foundation is one of those that is uh, is kind of a both doing and coordinating research on play around the world, and they they often. They often look at the state of play globally and, uh, you know, their, their conclusions from different countries around the world have been exactly the same. You know, interestingly, in, in one of the most recent state of play reports by Lego Foundation, they realized that 20% of uh, children themselves in these surveys report that they are too busy to play, that they would love to play, but they, they have too many things to do. And, you know, I don't know how the five-year-old can say that, you know, I'm too, I would love to play, but I'm too busy, other than, you know, being busy because of the things that they uh, are asked to do by by the school, but I think, Brett, that the, you know, there's a there's an important factor that is often linked to this conversation about, you know, children playing less when they are not in a school, you know, when they're spending their time at home, and it's the very rapidly growing time that very young children from early on they, they spend with the technology, and it's not at all uncommon in in the U.S. that you have a you have a tween, you know, somebody who's a ten year old who spends six, seven, eight hours every day with the, with the iPad or gadget or smartphone or computer at home. And it's, 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 a, it's obvious that, you know, if, if somebody, all, all of a sudden, if the kids are spending hours and hours every day on something new that they didn't used to do, that this time is away from something else. Often it's away from sleep, that they sleep a little bit less than they, they should. But in most cases, you know, this time that you see kids, kids uh, spending with their Digital gadgets. It's, it's often, often this time is 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 a is away from you know them being outdoors, you know, playing basketball or you know games with their with their friends or just you know playing indoors uh, their own way. So, but as I said, it is an area where we have much less uh, kind of a solid evidence and, and data to say anything exactly. Yeah, I think it's a lot of anecdotal. I think everyone understands that. Like kids are spending a lot of times on screens more, and I think the other issue too that's keeping kids away from play, which is like just sort of like traditional play, sort of open range, free range, kid directed. It's a lot of kids are just in organized events, you know, whether they're playing sports or doing piano or they're, I don't know, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, whatever that is, like that's a lot of their time is being spent doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, this is one of those trends that we, we have seen Certainly here in Australia and in, in the United States and many countries in Europe as well, is that, that this that the time that children have spent on what is called play is now much more kind of a controlled and directed by, by you know, the coach, somebody, a coach or, or, or music teacher or, or somebody who is leading the stuff rather than, you know, seeing children outdoors, you know, leading their own learning and, um, and, and play. And that's, that is the, it's not necessarily kind of a seriously, bad thing but it's a significant change of the children's experience that they have had before in you know when they have been playing by themselves and and the condition that is missing in this kind of a new form of playing when it's much more supervised and controlled by by adults is that 
the children have much less opportunities to experience that they are you know they are in control of something and that's for for me as a father of two two boys here is a is an extremely important thing that i give my children opportunities to to experience what it means to you know have a control of your own you know your own doings for a while every every day and you know at the same time if you if you look at the the typical inner city kids here for example here in sydney they have very very few moments and opportunities to have this experience that you know how does it feel to have this kind of a sense of you know controlling your own own life and doings for a while and that's such an important skill to learn to take this responsibility and understand what happens but we still give our children less and less opportunities to do that so that's why i'm so so kind of um much favoring this uh, free outdoor play as the i often call it the highest order of play that when parents ask me here that so what should i do with my kids to really make sure that they get the most of the benefits of of playtime as it just take them outdoors and step step aside just let them find a way to do these th- these things because that's where the likelihood that these miracles would would happen is the highest well i'd like to talk about the consequences of this lack of play and i think this is a good segue you're talking about this you know what play does uh, when kids are doing self-directed play it's they're training their executive function right like they're Right. They're in that really vital period in their life when they're, you know, in their childhood years and going into their adolescence. They need to learn that skill of making decisions on their own. And like you said, like there's kids they who don't even know how to play. Like they can't even do that. So if there's a kid who doesn't know how to play, man, what's he gonna be like when he's 20, 30 and he has to make big important decisions on his own? Like that's that's sad. Like I, I don't want to I just think about that. If a kid who doesn't know how to play, that's like an adult that won't be able to make decisions on their own or, or very well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you know, the, this is really good news for parents and teachers as well, who often feel that, you know, it's difficult to, that it's difficult to teach my children or my students how to play, or it's, it's difficult to kind of uh, make sure that they get all these benefits. But, you know, it's actually very easy because, uh, as I said earlier, that the easiest thing to do is just to, you know, give these children a freedom to play and, you know, exercise this kind of a sense of being in control and, you know, step aside and, and just just see that you know what happens and often people people come with the comments like but you know there's a, there's a hazard there there's a kind of a risks of getting hurt and and you know even even more and you know of course it's a it's a responsibility of us parents and teachers to make sure that you know all these kind of a serious risks are somehow controlled and that that's why i think it's important that that we we parents don't provide all the kind of a safety that is possible for kids when they're, for example, when they're playing in the forest or outside or in the park. But we we make sure that all the necessary safety measures will be considered so that they don't like seriously hurt themselves. But that, you know, that's exactly, if we don't, if we don't ever have our children in a situation where they have to kind of consider risks or, you know, think about whether they get hurt if they do something, you know, how do they learn to live their lives that is full of these hazards and risks around them if they if they haven't learned that in a younger younger age? And you know, when we we're working on this Let the Children Play book, we went to see some of these this kind of a risky play schools and and they are the risky play playgrounds and parks here in Sydney. And it's, it's the same story we hear all the time from these people who are running these places is that you know the kids actually experience much less incidences of kind of accidents or 
or harm uh, because they are allowed to consider themselves what is a kind of a safe way to play or, or you know use this space that often when we adults when we do this and we you know we, you know, we give these kids the list of things that they must not do in this playground or in this camp that they kind of don't think about, you know, this risk anymore, that they try to remember all these rules that we have given them, but they don't actively kind of think about what they mean and, you know, why this why, why this is not allowed compared to the situation where they should just left alone and said, you know, think about, you know, <laughs> consider yourself what is safe here. And and that's, that's why this, um, this free play outdoors is uh, so important. Yeah, that reminds me of something. We've had guests on the podcast, um, psychologists who are specializing in embodied cognition, and they talk about old people who fall. And they said one of the reasons why you see old people fall more is because as you get older, you tend to choose environments that are less complex. So you just, you're going to avoid stairs or curbs or being outdoors where there's a lot of complexity in the environment. And you're, you're basically your body and mind forget how to navigate that. And so when you do encounter a crack or a step, you don't know what to do and you, you trip and you fall. And that causes a lot of problems. That can, like they said, it's happening to children too, because like kids are not being spending time in outdoors in those really complex environments, and they don't learn how to navigate different. Their body and mind can't; they don't develop like they should. And so you're seeing kids, they fall down more, and you're showing like kids who play in dangerous areas, they actually are less prone to trips and falls because they know how to navigate those complex environments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, th- this is this is the the good way to further develop your executive functions that you mentioned. And and that, that's why many of the pediatricians, for example, in the United States, the American Academy of Pediatricians is so so kind of a strongly encouraging parents and schools to make sure that children have time to to free play outdoors because it's a good way to develop these functions exactly as as you mentioned that people for example, when the kids are in a playground and they have to pay attention to different things simultaneously, like, they, you know, they might be walking without their shoes somewhere and where there are kind of a risky things that they have to, they have to look at the, the, the situation where they are in and, you know, think about where they're going and, you know, all these other things that is so important to, you know, develop these abilities. But, you know, if you're always, uh, always walking holding somebody's hand and, you know, people are removing all these things for you, then you need to, you, you cannot really experience these things. And, and again, you know, this goes back to this, uh, the importance of, you know, free outdoor play and, and the power it can have on, on your overall growth and development. Okay. So outdoor play or the lack of outdoor play, free play can hinder executive function development, can hinder mind body development. Let's go back to grades in school. I mean, one of the reasons why we're, kids are playing less uh, in schools or doing less recess is that teachers thought, well, this would improve academic performance. Has that panned out? Yeah, well, you, you know, again, and kind of strictly speaking, this, this is a question that is very hard to, it's, it's hard to prove that less play would be would be the reason why the the academic results have not improved or actually they have gone down a little bit but you know in the big picture and and you know we we may take a look at the united states as a whole but you know let's let's take the whole globe just for the sake of curiosity here and 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 ask this thing that you know when the when the children are playing less than they used to like let's say 20 years ago and also that the quality of this play has probably declined what has happened to the academic learning outcomes. And as you said, that, you know, this has often been excused to play less is to have more time to, you know, learn these uh, all important uh, 
core academic skills. But, you know, the kind of a bold conclusion in this global scene is that, you know, the students are not learning better or more than they did 20 years ago. In many, many places, this, the quality of learning outcomes, the academic learning has been declining. For example, in the, the OECD countries, that is the, 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 the wealthiest part of the world, the United States and Finland and Australia are part of that. You know, students are, students' quality of learning outcomes has been declining during the 20 years. And of course, at the same time, you know, the time that they spend playing at home or in school has also been declined. But we, we cannot prove that, you know, that there would be a kind of a causal connection between these two things. So it's, it's a hard to argue, you know, anything about this, this but I, I think the, the important question here is as well that, you know, what, what, is, what is this declining playtime or, or play deprivation, as it's sometimes called, you know, what is it doing to, to children? Is it, is it good or bad? And, and as, we, as we write in the book that there's, a, there's ample of evidence showing that, you know, that when we take the play away from children's lives, whether it's in a school or at, at home or, or decrees that, that can have a serious consequences to their, particularly their mental well-being and health, but also physical development that we see all, all kinds of. And I, I think the United States is a good example of this, that, you know, how the health of young children has been declining, and particularly now the mental health because of the lack of opportunities to play. So this is a kind of a conversation that is going on. I, you know, I would... If I if I want to have evidence from anybody to this question, I would definitely turn into the the children's medical doctors, uh, pediatricians to you know ask their opinion and their their view on this. And they are very clear about you know what what happens when when the kids are not playing enough, and in turn what what the kind of a healthy and and, and high quality play can do for for all children. So grades have been declining. We can't prove you can't. It's hard to prove that it's the lack of play that's a causal factor. But I mean, when you talk to teachers who have been teaching for thirty years, and they've they started off where it was very play based. The kids got lots of recess, and they got moved to that period where they had to like you know less recess because they got to focus on the test. They would note that it just it got harder to teach, particularly younger kids, because the kids they. You know, kids are kids. They're gonna. They want to move around. They've got the short attention spans. They got a lot of energy, and by not letting them play, they just got harder and harder to corral them, make them make them focus on learning multiplication tables when they're six years old. Yeah, that's that's true. And but you know, it's it's not necessarily just play. I think the teachers are right when they say this. But there there are you know there are many other forms that are close to play, like physical activity, for example, that has been has been equally declining in many many schools in the United States that the children don't have like daily physical activity as they should like like you know compared to the schools in Finland where where the regulation the national regulation basically is that every child must have at least one hour phys- physical activity not the physical education but physical activity every day and this is something that has been declining in the US schools you know physical activity and play are you know in many cases, it's the same thing, but it can also have different different forms. So I, I think this movement in general that the kids, you know, if we if we keep children inside the classroom, staying on their seats and and you know focus on stuff that the teacher is giving them, it's um, it's no wonder that teachers see you know more and more children who are not able to concentrate. We often say that 
half an hour, 30 minutes is about the maximum time that a primary school student can concentrate on practically anything. That requires a kind of a serious intellectual effort to understand or, or do something. Then they need to have a break to, you know, move around. And, 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 and you know, of course, the play is the easiest thing to do that, just to let the children play a little bit or do something, but the physical physical exercise, physical activity is equally equally important. So we need to have we need to have both of those certainly. And then another connection with this mental health issue um, you talk about, there could be a connection with the lack of play or physical activity in schools contributing to you're seeing this increase in numbers of children being diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And it could be there's like, like we've actually had a psychologist on this talking about there is there was probably, and it's probably gotten, he said, maybe it's gotten better, but there, there has been an over, like ADHD has been overdiagnosed. Yes. And one, the argument is that the reason why it's been overdiagnosed is you have kids who they're, they're required to focus on, you know, learning math or reading or science for long periods of time without any physical activity. They can't do it. And so the teacher's like, well, and you go see the counselor and the counselor's like, well, maybe he has ADHD and they go to the doctor and then the kid's on Ritalin or Adderall. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's true. Actually, in, in the book, we have a story about my own my older older son here, who was young when we lived in in the United States, and and there was a there was an American psychologist who was spending one morning with my my wife when I was in a meeting at the same time, and this psychologist came back to me after this morning session looking really serious, and and her question to me was that you didn't know that your son has ADHD and you know he, he was less than 3 that time but but you know you, you know this point that when we look at the children it depends on what type of experience or culture we have behind us because for us of course as parents when we look at our, our own son who is you know he's a wild kid like many young boys are that you know he cannot stand still he wants to climb trees and you know collect plants and and ants and you know those things um, you know, rather than sit and listen to boring stories of the the adults, but in some other places, this is considered as a as a kind of a disturbing factor. And I must say, just like you said, it I think that ADHD in the United States is is highly, highly kind of kind of overdiagnosed. I'm not saying that there wouldn't be individuals there who would need this. And you know, I'm also belong to to those who believe that you you know, if only we would be giving children more opportunities to play and you know to do the things that they want to do. Uh, that we would probably have less, you know, less of these cases where we really need to consider the kind of a med- medical treatment for the kids. Another consequence, potential consequence of lack of play that I was I was intrigued by and also worried about is there may be affecting or co- the lack of play is causing a decreasing creativity. Mm-hmm. What what's there? Like, what does the research say there, and what do you think is going on? Yeah, I think it's a similar similar trend that we see in the overall school achievements uh, among kids. That there are there are some studies that indicate that the creativity overall has been in decline during the last twenty years. It, it, again, it's a it's a difficult you know creativity is even harder to measure than you know learning in in general. But some indications say that creativity has been in decline. But again, it's a it's a difficult to Prove that this would be directly linked to the, you know, declining time of play or experiences that children have, particularly in free free outdoor play. So, so we can we cannot really speculate too much on that. But again, I think what we can say is that if if you really if you're really concerned about the 
the, you know, the state of creativity among young people, then the one thing you can do is to, you know, ask yourself, are we allowing these children to experience free unstructured play enough where they could experience and exercise and, and further develop their, their imagination, curiosity and creativity. So rather than wait for the evidence that would indicate that, I think it's it's better to start action and, and, and try to, you know, try to make sure that the kids would continue to have these experiences over time. You know, the other, other interesting thing is that, again, and there's probably more research on, on on that front, that this creativity as such seemed to seem to decrease also when the children are growing older. Sometimes people say that the more time you spend in school and learning in school, the less creative you will become because you, you kind of learn to do things as they should be done in the school rather than figure out yourself different things but but you know there, there is this this trend I, I think is equally important that the when when the kids are growing older and this has been there for probably forever so it's not anything new that you know more the children are spending time in a school environment and you know exposed to teaching and learning as it is the less creative they seem to become at least their, their own kind of a sense of creativity declines and then there's this other trend that is more like an overtime like an evolution, what happens, what has happened during the last 20 years. And, and that's why, you know, we, we need to do something about it. And if you want to do something, something about it, just make sure that your students and children have enough time to, you know, exercise and develop these important elements of creativity that you can do equally well in school and also at home. So you know, parents who are listening, they're like, okay, play's important. I want to get my kid playing more. Is there, I mean, if, I'm sure you've researched this, like what does healthy play look like? What are there factors that we know? It's like, well, if these factors are there, then this is this is good play. Or should parents get really hung up on that? <laughs> it's a great question. And I think, you know, my advice to parents who are listening to this and, and curious about their own children's play or grandchildren's play is to to really first ask that, what, what do I understand? How, how do I define play? What is play to me? And because that's something that needs to be needs to be figured out first. But then, you know, again, in, when we're right, working on the Let the Children Playbook, this was one of those hardest questions that we had in, in trying to, you, you know, basically answer the question that you were asking, that what makes a good play? So we were identifying some elements that, again, you know, parents or teachers can consider when they are thinking about, you know, how they want their children to play, whether it's indoors or outdoors. And one of, one of those important aspects is, uh, and, and indicators and factors, is the what we call self-directedness, which means that that the, the kids should be allowed to, you know, take a lead and lead the way when they are playing rather than, you know, somebody telling them what to do or giving them the rules and regulations. Sometimes this is good as well, but in in, in a kind of a higher order play, this uh, self-directed action and activity is uh, uh, is a good one. And then the other thing is that I think, you know, the children should, when they're playing, that they should really feel that they they do it because they, they, they want to do it themselves, that they are not playing because their mother or father asked them to do, or they're not playing because the, the recess coach is, you know, asking or expecting them to do some something like this i think the, the the play also has to have a positive kind of emotion that it has to be the kids have to feel more these positive emotions joy and happiness than they they fear kind of a negative excitement or or fear that sometimes belong to the uh, play as well 
And then I think another important part that parents can also consider when they're thinking about their children's play is the to what extent this activity will engage them in you know using their imagination. How much the the children feel that they're curious about things that they're doing, whether it's a play or something else. Because though the curiosity and you know using actively using your imagination are the key things for this kind of a creative action and creative thinking to to take place. So these are some of those things that we describe this in detail in a book that, you know, those people who are interested in, you know, different, different kind of qualities or different levels of play. And if particularly if you, if you want to make sure that your child, when she or he is playing is, is really getting a good experience that these are some of those questions that you can ask and and make sure that uh, they, they are included in this process of play. Well, Paz, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, you can come and see me here in in, this, in Down Under in, in Australia. Happy to see anybody who is traveling this way at some point <laughs> when the borders are, are open. But I have my own website. Uh, it's called pazisalberg.com, where I, I try to keep all my work-related things. And obviously, I invite everybody to to read our book, Let the Children Play. That has a, is, a, is a, like a longer story written for particularly for North American uh, parents and, and teachers to, you know, have these conversations that we have been having here this morning. But, you know, take a read of the book and and if you like it, let me know. If you have any questions, I'm very happy to uh, happy to have a chat. All right, Posse Salberg, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Well, I guess there's Posse Salberg. He's the author of the book, Let the Children Play. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, PosseSalberg.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash play. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AON Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AON Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AON Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with the friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McCade. Reminding you to not only listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>